Um, Myers and Salavi, which are the founders of emotional intelligence, right? They started the foundation of it. And it's really about it's emotional intelligence is about being able to perceive emotions and to access them in a way to understand them, to create intellectual growth. So we have to be able to understand those things and really be smarter. But I think everybody is probably more familiar with Daniel Goldman's work around emotional intelligence, right? And that's really about those five core things being self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. It, um, you know, when we look at the Polchik wheel, there is, you know, the core emotions. And as we go inward or outward, those start to expand. Um, and we have to be able to communicate at what level of each emotions that we are. Because, you know, even when we talk about um, joy, there's serenity, um, there's ecstasy, right? So there's, there's, there's a range and we have to be able to show where we are and communicate where we are to be able to be successful. Because going from rage to frustration is a huge dynamic, right? And we can just explain that, no, none of just frustrated. Him understanding what frustration is instead of dad being mad at me makes a huge um, impact in how we journey or how we have a conversation. When we do something that's communicated to someone else. So when you have an impact on one person on your team, they're going to go and share that. Whether we tell them not to or not negative or positive, they're going to go and share that. So now the next person say, wow, Thomas is a different person or Thomas is allowing me to grow. So now you look around just because you were empathetic with one of your people, just because you have one of your people truly uh, trust you or truly, truly create a safe space. Now everybody feel that there's a safe space and people want to start to share. And as we start to share, we start to grow. And as we start to grow, then there's this contagiousness around us. Welcome to the Improvement Nerds Podcast, where we host conversations about the things that nerd us out with one goal in mind, sharing best practices and sharing techniques and tools that allow us to make lasting change. In each episode, we'll feature a different idea and hopefully through that episode, give you a set of new tools, new skills, and new thinking that'll allow you to change how you do your work, how you lead others, and how you show up in your life. We're so excited that you've chosen to nerd out with us. We hope that these episodes are exactly the things that you need to hear in order to get started in making the improvements that you want to see happen in the world. If these episodes speak to you, please subscribe to our podcast, like what we're doing, and leave a comment. Margaret Mead said it best when she shared that one should never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, that it was the only thing that ever had. I couldn't agree more. Let's get busy, improvement nerds. We got a lot of work to do. Yeah. And I, I mean, and I love the concept of the questioning, right? You know, because you know, learn, one of the learning philosophies that I live by is wisdom lives within, right? If I ask you enough questions, you'll solve the problem. I think most of us start off um, looking for a destination, right? We're looking for an endpoint, and we are all driving to get to a destination. And some of us along the way realize that it's not about the destination. It's really about the journey, right? It's really about are we enjoying things along the way? Are we um, smelling the roses where we're all functioning in a way that we're helping each other? Because if you're happy, there's no way that that happiness is not going to impact people around you or that happiness is not going to impact the community or impact your workspace or and just start to navigate you know um, one smile changed the life of, of a thousand people 
Hey Improvement Nerds, this is Tom. I'm back with another episode of the Improvement Nerds podcast. Today I have a special guest. Do you go by uh, Gerald or do you like to go by another name? Gerald is my preferred name. Growing up I was called Jerry, but I've claimed my adult name is Gerald, so I am Gerald today. All right, Gerald, I'm so excited <laughs> to welcome you to the show this morning. Um, by Zoom, I'm already envious of the surroundings that you found yourself in. You're hanging out. It looks like on a porch, it, mature trees, beautiful sunshine, and here in Indianapolis, I'm down in my basement, and uh, but I'm not missing much because it's pouring rain right now, and it's crazy how just, you know, a three-hour drive makes quite the difference in the weather that you find yourself in, so it looks like you're, you got a little bit of sunshine right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm um, sitting out on the patio at my uh, mother-in-law's house uh, here visiting for a few days, and um, as I look to my left and to my right, you know, the birds are chirping, the sun is shining, uh, and it's absolutely a gorgeous day. So I'm equally excited today, um, not just because of the weather, but to talk to you. Great. So excited you're here. And I, over the last couple of episodes, the settings in which we're recording these, you know, I find that people were either talking in their home office you know, or they're in an outdoor setting, and I, I just find that it's been a lot of fun to see how individuals, uh, because to date this episode, right now we have COVID-19 occurring, so a lot of people are displaced and they're working in different environments than they're used to, and I think like early as I was making episodes, as this was announced, there was a lot of shock and individuals were like not comfortable and it was easy to tell on the episodes that like we were going through change. And I think now in these episodes, you're starting to see like the changes happen and people are moving forward from here and they're like making it the way they want it to be. And this just seeing where you're at right now, it's obvious that like you're on the other side of this change and you're making making those decisions like, hey man, when it comes to it, I'm I'm gonna work outside in nature and just enjoy the peacefulness of it. So that's so cool. Absolutely. I mean, I think we all have to adjust, right? We have to adjust to where we are. We have to adjust, not just physically, but just mentally, right? To make sure that we're putting ourselves in situations that we can ride the wave or that we can enjoy this process. Because if not, then we're all stuck, not necessarily physically in a basement, but mentally in a basement, right? And we can't see any light or any sunshine on the other side. What a great way to summarize that. So tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, you and I, we got to know each other uh, through a mutual friend, Steph Wood. And, you know, I think the first time I met you, we we were partnered up um, in one of her coaching sessions and had the opportunity to kind of compare notes. And we nerded out, although this episode, we're not going to nerd about this, but our (laughs) connection was parenting in raising our children. So as part of that, that exercise with Steph, you know, you and I, we were going through that activity and we got to talk a little bit and learn a little bit about each other's backgrounds. And I was just impressed with the way that you carried yourself and the way that you were raising your family. And that it, I learned at the time you were starting your business, it sounded like uh, maybe that juncture you were about a year into it. So you were talking a little bit about that. So it was a lot of fun to get to know you. And I can't wait for people to, to get to, hear your background and the journey that you've been on. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So tell us, I'll start with where I am. You know, all the decisions that I've made um, has really been driven by the concept of family. Um, and I think early on 
in my life, um, every decision I made was really driven on how can I get to the next level? How can I get to the next pay, uh, pay level or pay income? And probably about three years ago, um, I really started to think about what's important to me and what's really driving me. And what I realized was all the things that I jotted down to say that are important to me were things that I was not spending time. So family was important, but I was on the road four or five days a week. Um, being a man of God was important, but I was not doing those things. So about three years ago, I stopped and said, okay, what's important? And that kind of changed um, my path. And today I can clearly say that I'm doing what I'm passionate about. And right now what I'm passionate about is really about helping people understand the value of emotions and really centering everything around emotional intelligence. You know, but backing back, you know, how I got here was, you know, I've had the opportunity to work for a lot of great companies, uh, Fortune 100 companies. And what I realized was when I look back, I found myself in situations where I was not my best self. And as I look back and really started to reflect, there were some situations where I didn't show up emotionally intelligent, right? Or I didn't show up the right way. So for me, when I really started to, to step back and look, why am I not having success? Why am I not achieving the goals? You know, I got to, you know, executive levels with a lot of really big companies, but I couldn't get further. And so when I started to self-reflect, it's, is it me? Is it the company? And naturally, you know, I wanted to blame the company and the culture. But what I also realized that there were some things about me that I was not doing or some things about me where I was not showing up. And that led me to this journey around emotional intelligence. And it was really about what's driving me. And, you know, so as I look at this journey now, uh, compared to eight or 10 years ago, um, I'm a completely different person. The way I look at life is completely different. But more importantly, the way that I look at people is completely different because I think we're all on a journey and um, my process. So my goal is how do I help others discover how to be their best self? And I think emotional intelligence is probably the foundation of all of that. What an awesome story. And I think a lot of the people that I've hosted on this show and talked to were uh, on a similar kind of journey. And, and they use the word journey and or, or path that it's winding and, you know, there's ups and downs and, you know, you really, there's no map for it. And the only way to navigate it is to trust your instincts and to define the your your ultimate destination and you know put that at the front of of it all so you know as i bring people on and they talk about their experiences that always comes out as like i'm on a journey even where i am today i know i'm in a better spot than i was before and that to me is is important but they're like and here's the other places i know i want to go to next and it's no longer about like a certain career objective or a salary salary threshold it is uh like a, a a level of happiness or giving or serving and that just always you know gets me going i i met someone his name is mike uh while i was working out in the four corners area of new mexico and we were talking a little bit about careers specifically for nurses and how, how do we create like a career ladder for nurses? And he's like, man, 
I don't know, I'm just not feeling it today. We keep using this word career path over and over. It's like, I feel like we should be creating this happiness path. <laughs> like, you know, the words we use to talk about what we really want in life sometimes can cause us to go the opposite direction of where we really want to be. And, you know, people are on career paths and that's different than being on a happiness path. So I, when he said that, it was just like a light bulb went off. And I think a lot of people that I'm talking to on this episode, like they, that light bulb has gone off for them. Maybe they're not using those same words, but they realize like, this isn't the journey I want. And here's how I'm going to have to make changes. Yeah. I mean, I think absolutely. Thomas, I think most of us start off um, looking for a destination, right? We're looking for an endpoint, and we are all driving to get to a destination and some of us along the way realize that it's not about the destination. It's really about the journey, right? It's really about, are we enjoying things along the way? Are we um, smelling the roses? You know, I understand that that's probably something people always say, but are we really smelling the roses? Are we really identifying and seeing things around us? Because I think oftentimes, you know, we take trips and we take the same trip and we start to realize, oh, I didn't see that yesterday. Oh, I didn't see that the week before. But those things have really been there along the journey. We've just not taken an opportunity. So I think for me, you know, as I've slowed down and really started to um, kind of learn to navigate myself and navigate what's important, I've started to see a lot of things. I've started to understand a lot of things. And I think that's the journey that we need to navigate, right? Because if we can get people to start to notice and start to um, identify what makes people happy, then I think that creates a process where we're all moving at a pace and even moving in a space where we can help each other um, navigate that. I, I love that. I had a mentor who, while I was thinking about making my transition uh, from working for an organization as an intrapreneur or an internal consultant to going out on my own, you know, it, it took me a lot of thinking, almost too much thinking before I made my transition. Uh, so I had to have these conversations with my mentors for several years before my my switch from a career path to a happiness path actually happened. But this person, Ike, uh, I've had Eric Iker on um, one of my earlier episodes, he'd always say like, Tom, you have to learn to measure your outcomes in a different way. And he says, I want you to start practicing significance over success. And we hmm. want you start to think about what you're doing and the significance of it and who you're doing it with and the impact that you guys are having on each other and together and, and for others. That's really where this is going to change for you. And, it, you know, he had said that over coffee, lunch or whatever venue we were having these conversations. And he had said that so many times. And I, I just wasn't ready to hear it. Because one, it was quite, quite different than what I had been brought up to believe and what I had been trained to believe through the business institutions and, and all that. So like my ruler of success was pretty fixed and I had to learn how to measure in a different way and, and slow down. I think a lot of people feel like busy. The busier they are, the more successful they're being. And sometimes they wear that like a badge of honor. And one of my friends, Rachel Pritz, um, always says that, you know, that's, that's more than just being busy. That's you're distracting yourself. And she said, like, 
you know, we've heard Warren Buffett and Bill Gates say that busy's the new stupid. So she's like, we yeah. learn to slow down and, and whatnot. So it sounds like all those things have come to fruition for you and you're in a great spot now. And it sounds like you're encouraging others that they too need to give themselves a little bit of grace and space and reconnect with what they're doing, why they're doing it and who they're doing it with. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think my hope is that as we've gone through um, this journey in the last 60 days, I mean, I think my hope is that people um, really start to reprogram themselves and really start to understand what's important. You know, I'm home with my family um, and I see the smiles, I see the joy. What's important? You know, I understand that money drives people and that success drives people. But for me, it's those things are important, but at what expense? Mm-hmm. And if it's at the expense of happiness, at the expense of family, um, at the expense of marriage, at the expense of friendship, at the expense of relationships, then when we look back, what do we really accomplish, right? And I, 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 I like the path of happiness, right? Because I think if we can all find our path of happiness, then I think we create a place where we're all functioning in a way that we're helping each other. Because if you're happy, there's no way that that happiness is not going to impact people around you or that happiness is not going to impact the community or impact your workspace or, and just start to navigate, you know, um, one smile changed the life of, of a thousand people. So just imagine if everybody's happy, uh, just imagine how many lives we can change just by identifying our journey and where we're happiest. That I feel like, you know, we could just philosophize and, nerd out in this capacity because everything you're saying like uh, I agree with that you know joy at work can spill over into joy at life and people who are are creating that energy and sharing that energy are radiating this this energy across not just the people within their inner circle but beyond that inner circle that next layer and the layer after that and things that good you'll never really see the total outcome of it by being happy at work and sharing your joy with others and encouraging them to be joyful too like that is pretty profound and you may never know the total outcome of it um but it's still know that it does it that it thousands of people's beyond that single exchange uh, is is really it's playing out day in and day out and I love that you say like it goes from happy at work to happy at home to to happy in your community and this flywheel of things just start to occur and I, I I that's why I made the changes I thought like where I was I was doing some really good things and I was really enjoying what I was doing but I thought we could be doing so much more we could be doing so much more good and the only way to be the messenger of that good or to play a little bit bigger was to go out on my own and not work for one organization, but try to instill this thinking in a lot of different organizations. So for, for you, you know, has you had this kind of profound insights of like, hey, this is what emotional intelligence can do for an organization and for the people in the organization, but beyond that, this is the good it can do at the community or societal level. Like, did you go through that awakening of like, oh my gosh, like, we're onto something here. This is something I, I'm called to do. I've got to do. No, I would be glad to say that that was kind of where the journey started, right? But no, the journey started selfishly. It was really just about me. <laughs> it was really about how do I help me uh, be more successful? 
And as I started to really um, journey into emotional intelligence and really started to figure out um, the impact on me, then it became more of an impact on other things. And I think, Thomas, for me, the value was um, one of the organizations that I selected to really partner with to really understand the foundation of emotional intelligence is six seconds. And that's an organization that's um, a national organization. And it's not just about training someone to be an emotional intelligence consultant. It's really about creating a, a, a community of emotionally intelligent people. And one of Josh Freeman, who's the CEO of Six Seconds, you know, one of the things that they're striving for is to have a billion people practicing emotional intelligence by 2039. And, you know, a billion people. So just imagine if, you know, one out of every five or one out of, you know, every 10 people that you run into are truly empathetic or truly understanding the value of their emotions. Imagine what happens, right? Because now we've started this uh, wave of people or this revolution of people who are really focused on helping people be smarter with how they feel, helping people be smarter with managing their emotions. And I think right now with where we are, emotions are everywhere, right? Emotions are up and down, they're um, undefined, they're undescribed. So if we can just help people really understand that, then that creates the foundation for us to move forward. So now that I've gotten through the selfish part of working with myself and understanding myself and really understanding the impact that emotional intelligence has had on my, on my relationships, on my professional life, but more importantly, my home with my wife, with my sons, you know, I see that as being something that um, I need to help others do, you know, so um, I've spent the last 18 months talking to everybody that I can about emotional intelligence and the impact and the importance of it, not just from a point of how to be more successful at work, but how do you integrate that into your life? Because for me, it's emotional intelligence. It's not a destination. It's not somewhere you get to. It's a journey that you go on. It's a part of who you are every day. It's about being intentional about how you show up. It's being intentional about here's who I Here's who I choose to be in this moment. Here's who I choose to be in this life. And I'm showing up in a way intentionally that I want other people to see. And my hope is that as we start to show up intentional, just like a smile or just like happiness, it starts to rub off on the next person, rub off on the next person. And we get to a point where it's like, this person truly understands who they are. How do I get to that state? That person truly knows how to express themselves in a way that engages people. How do I get to that point? And I think that's part of the journey of understanding. Yeah. The, I, I appreciate that you shared the starting point for you, that it was very self selfish. And I think I had read, and I might've said this on another episode, a quote um, in the book, um, not impossible. So, it's a uh, the maker movement kind of focus, and they they said that he had three rules for solving big problems: is you you have to be selfish in order to be selfless. Like if you aren't doing what you enjoy doing, it's gonna be really hard for you to keep doing it and to share whatever it is that's filling your cup with others. So the, the he was saying you have to be self selfish first to get this whole thing going. So, sure. and, and I've seen that as, well, all change starts with the personal decision to do something different, right? So whatever the motivation is, 
that person has made a choice and their journey starts and then you know from there things unfold in front of them so that they could take that first step the next step and whatever steps thereafter and along the way that causes impressions uh, in the people that that person has surrounded themselves with and you give confidence and encouragement and a nudge to those people to embark on their own journey because they are, they can see the success not the success but the growth that you are experiencing has a result of it so i, th- I think what you'd said there a lot of people um hesitate to start something because they feel like it's too selfish and i when i read that i was like that's so smart is you can't ever show up for others until you've shown up for yourself. No, I agree with that, Thomas. And I think for me, one of the quotes that um, I, I live by, and it took me a long time to truly understand it, right, was the Gundy quote, you know, be the change in the world that you want to see, right? And I think oftentimes you read that, and it's like, okay, I understand that. But at some point, it was really back to that, you know, I can't change anybody until I've changed myself. Um, I can't help anybody until I've helped myself. Um, you know, so that drives me back to, you know, the importance of emotional intelligence, right? Because if I'm, if I truly understand my emotions and I can navigate my emotions, then I can help other people. But if I don't understand my emotions and I can't help you with your emotions, then we're in a screaming match because no one is able to identify, right? But just simply by starting with being able to navigate my emotions and understand those to now when I see myself in a situation that's starting to get out of hand, I can just step back and say, hey, Thomas, I'm going to step back because this is not the right time to have that conversation. And I think we've all had those conversations, whether in our marriage or with with someone at work where we say, I wish I had not said that. I wish I could have taken that back. But in reality, if we learn to leverage emotional intelligence and we're practicing it, we get that opportunity because our mind is telling us, hey, it's not the right time. And if we're really leveraging emotional intelligence, we can step back and say, okay, my mind and my triggers are telling me it's time to do something different. It's not the right time to have that conversation. Um, so we get a do over, right? Uh, it may not be physically, but mentally, we're practicing that every day. So in that moment, my my emotions tell me, hey, you're not mentally, emotionally prepared to have this conversation. So why don't we do this another time? So now I'm stepping backwards um, and I can truly practice that. And, you know, again, I it, it's not about a place of where I am. It's a, a place of where I'm going. It's a place of, of where I'm headed because it's not, you know, I can say I'm emotionally intelligent, or I can say that I'm a great speaker, I can say that I'm all these things, but if I'm not doing those things and being those things, then it's not, um, it's not showing up consistently, right? I can um, be that one day and not the next day, but it's a part of who I am. So it's a part of being that, um, it's a part of the journey. Um, and most people think I've arrived, I've gotten here. And then they stop doing the things that helped them or the things that got them there. And then we lose uh, the concept of practice. So regardless of what work you know we're doing or what work we're thinking about, it's about the journey, about the process, and about continually doing it, not just getting to a point and say, "Yep, I've arrived." Yeah, that that habit piece of it is really important in consistency. And so, you individuals who want to go through change, you know that they have to 
you know, first commit to it. And then as they go through it, they have to take inventory of the things they're doing different and the habits that they're trying to create in order to hardwire that that change from just an idea into a habit to now a, a new way of living. And I think emotional intelligence is one of those things that, you know, once you're awakened to it and you're like, this is something I want to strengthen and grow, people have to understand that it's not flipping a switch. It's going to take some rigor and it's going to take some effort on your part to improve and strengthen your emotional intelligence. So I think what you're saying there is either there is no endpoint here. It's a journey you're always going to be on and there's always a way to practice it and role model it. And you're not really trying to improve for the sake of improving, but you're trying to show up the best that you can in any context. No, absolutely. I mean, I'm, you know, I have kids, my kids are older now, but I think one of my favorite movies, right, is Inside Out. So just think about Inside Out. What if we all walked around and everyone could see all our emotions? If they could see anger and joy and sadness and happiness and all of those things, what would they really see the most? Would they see anger? You know, would they see, what would they see? And I think as we talk about emotional intelligence, to me, that's one of the ones that, um, one of the movies that really kind of show who we are. And I think for us, it's really about, we experience all those emotions, anger and joy and happiness and sadness and fear, but it's about really being smart with our emotions. So if we experience those, how do we not hide our emotions? Because we don't want, we don't want to hide them. It's really about understanding and navigating those. Um, You know, so the example for me becomes if I'm angry you know, anger is not a negative emotion. People want to say, well, if you're angry or mad, that's negative. So our emotions are not negative, positive or negative. I think the impact that our emotions have is what creates that negative or positive outcome, right? So I think for me, um, you know, if I could journey into this time, I think one of the things, you know, when I'm working with people, you know, I really have a four-step approach to kind of helping people talk about emotional intelligence. And I think one becomes, how do we name the emotions that we're feeling, right? So if we can name that emotion, that starts to uh, help us to focus. You know, I had a conversation uh, with a client, with the CEO a couple of months ago, and he said, I'm so frustrated in my meetings. And my conversation to him was, are you communicating that frustration with your team? He said, no, I would never do that. And my conversation to him was, do you not think your team see that you're frustrated? And he said, well, yeah. I said, well, your team may even think that you're angry because they don't understand the emotion. And um, so I told him, I said, why don't you start practice naming that emotion? And, you know, we talked a, a couple of weeks later. And he said, you know, I told my team I was frustrated. And they were so excited because they all thought I was angry. And I said, so if we're able to name our emotions and let people understand where we are, it's easy for them to help us navigate that. But if they don't understand where we are and they're thinking we're something that we're not, then that creates more confusion in that process. I'm glad you're bringing this up. We're going to delve into, I know you have a four-step approach to helping people practice emotional intelligence. Before we dive into that, I think that first step of naming your emotions, there's a couple of things right there, at least in my generation. So I'm 37. So I, they classify me as like a millennial or an exennial. I've like bridged the two gaps. So talking about emotions is very unnatural 
to me, um, in some ways, emotions in my upbringing and my education were perceived weakness, like you didn't talk about them. And so, and I think it's true for the, the, the full millennial, so those of that generation, but it's interesting how I've seen this change recently. So a lot of people, the millennials and before, maybe they have a steeper learning curve because in some ways emotions were taboo and they've resisted them for so long. So that I think they have a lot of work to do. But what's filling my cup recently is I've been helping our, our he'll be seven at the end of the month with some of his homework. So, you know, school's not in session and they're doing e-learning. So they've sent home these assignments and coding, so they think computer programming is an important language for a first grader to know. <laughs> so before every coding session, they don't talk about the analytic side of coding. They talk about the emo- some of the emotions with coding. So like trying to make a code and feeling frustrated with it because it's not working. So sitting there with, with him and we're watching this video about frustration. And they said, it's this undefined event you can't really explain why it's happening you get angry for no reason and it's preventing you from getting you getting to the outcome you want so here's how you deal with this emotion and they said the best thing you can do is to redefine why frustration happens and they said it is you need to think of it has the emotion that happens right before you learn something new and man where was that video when I was trying to write a curriculum or create an Excel formula that helped me to solve a problem in my finance studies or or whatever, I mean, like, I, I, I would just take that frustration and I would bury it and I'd push right past. I wouldn't even acknowledge it because no one ever taught me what it was, why it was happening, and how to cope or deal with it. And now I think they're doing great things through the curriculums and in grade school. And I don't know if it's happening in the other learning levels, but for him to see that, I'm like, he's not going to have as much of a climb that I have to improve and strengthen his emotional intelligence. Cause they're talking to him and teaching him the analytics and the emotions of performing an activity. And for me, like I was just, you know, process oriented and like my emotions stayed at home. So did you talk a little bit about, are you seeing that? Is it a generational thing? Do more, do different generations have a a steeper curve than others? What's, what's playing out there? Yeah. I mean, I think I'll start with where you, you finish. I think one of the things that um, the schools in Indiana has recently rolled out a curriculum on social emotional learning. And I think it's focused on emotional intelligence and that is from, you know, K through 12. And even some colleges now have really started to focus on e- social emotional learning. So I think at the foundation of success, um, you know, organizations and leaders have really started to understand that we have to have emotions to be successful. We can't leave our emotions at the door. We can't leave our emotions at home because emotions drive people and people drive performance. So if we want the outcome that we want at work, we have to learn to manage or navigate emotions. If we're asking um, our employees to leave their emotions at home, we're ultimately saying, leave your passion at home. You know, we're ultimately say, saying, leave the things that helps you be successful behind. So if emotions are a part of who I am and I'm leaving that at home, then how am I going to be successful, right? 
So I think for me, and I think we had this conversation at somewhere along the journey as well as real men don't cry or, you know, based on your community or where you're raised and based on parenting, it's how we're allowed to express how emotions are limiting. So as we become adults and we start to work in this world, we find ways to suppress or limit the emotions that we share, or we have two or three emotions that we share. And most of those are most of those are the ones that have a negative impact instead of a positive impact, right? So for me, growing up in the South, it was real men don't show their emotions, right? So I learned to suppress those emotions. And it took me a long time to get to a point where I'm comfortable being me. I'm comfortable, um, you know, sharing emotions. Now, I'm not saying I'm just bawling with tears, but I'm comfortable being able to share that I'm happy, I'm excited, and, and, and being able to do those things. So I think you know, not just generational, um, but also the way that we're raised, also the environment in our homes, um, you know, how our parents were raised. I think all those things start to impact um, who we are, the part of the country that we're raised in, um, the value system. So I think uh, I'm excited about um, the curriculums that are being rolled out. I'm excited about um, the transition of uh, different readers and, and different companies I um, mean, you know, six seconds being one of those that's really focused on the importance of expressing or managing your emotions because emotions are a part of who we are. And if we hide those or suppress those or keep those hidden, then we're never going to achieve the level of success that we need to because emotions are what drives us. Yeah. And so first having an acceptability to talk about emotions is like, a, a cultural piece that has to be present is, is it safe wherever you are in whatever environment you're in to talk about emotions? So that, that I think is really foundational. And then the other thing I have found to be pretty interesting is there is a range of emotions that exist. So let's go back. I love Disney and the fact that you brought up inside out, like I could, if, if every episode we talked about a Disney show, like I could actually hang with the guest most of the times what they're saying i'm like i have no idea what you mean but i think it's really important but if they talked about it in the form of a disney movie i'd be like i totally get it so those five characters that are occurring within riley's head are your basic emotions so i think there's i don't know the name of the diagram but rachel pritz shared it with me and i'm sure you know what it is too is those five emotions are kind of at the center of the wheel and they're very basic. So let's take anger, for example. So a lot of times people can only explain that singular emotion of I'm feeling angry, but out in the next layer past anger is another range of emotions that are more complex and important to understand. So I think people need to grow in their understanding of all the different emotions that can be occurring they're they're more than just anger sadness joy you know they're they're complex so frustration is one of those things that occurs within the anger element but is more complex and better defined than just being angry so do you what do you know that wheel or have you do you work to teach your your the organizations you partner with or the individuals you coach to, to expand their understanding of the range of emotions? Sure. So the wheel I use is a potent wheel of emotions. And what potent describes is that there's eight core emotions. And those eight core emotions are joy, trust, um, there's fear, there's surprise, there's sadness, there's disgust, 
there's anger and there's anticipation. So, and I think the analogy that you use is it shows up, right? So we talk about um, anger. There's um, several tiers of anger, right? So we have anger, we have rage, uh, we have annoyance, we have frustration. And uh, back to the original example of if someone only sees anger and we never communicate the different stages, then they just see one thing. So it's important that you're communicating, naming that emotion, right? Because if we're able to name that, hey, you know, when my son say, dad, I see that you're angry. And I said, no, son, I'm not angry. I'm a little annoyed because we've had this conversation before. That opens up an opportunity to really have a conversation because instead of him saying, oh, my dad is angry or my dad is enraged, no, dad's just a little annoyed. So I can deal with being annoyed or frustrated, but I can't deal with being angry or enraged. So I think, it, um, you know, when we look at the Polchik wheel, there is, you know, the core emotions. And as we go inward or outward, those start to expand. Um, and we have to be able to communicate at what level of each emotions that we are. Because, you know, even when we talk about um, joy, there's serenity, um, there's ecstasy, right? So there's, there's, there's a range and we have to be able to show where we are and communicate where we are to be able to be successful. Because going from rage to frustration is a huge dynamic, right? And we can just explain that, no, son, I'm just frustrated. Him understanding what frustration is instead of dad being mad at me makes a huge um, impact in how we journey or how we have a conversation. And just think about it as an adult, right? Our feelings are tenfold, right? So when we see anger, we see angry at 10. And if we can just get from angry at 10 to now frustrated at one, we're able to step back and navigate those conversations. So for me, our politics wheel is one of the ones that I use consistently. And even for me, uh, a part of my journal, and as I'm doing uh, coaching, um, I have copies of those wheels that I give to people to put on the back of their planners. So as they're navigating their day, they can fit that plan over and say, okay, here's where I am, right? Here's where I am. How do I communicate or how do I start to navigate that emotion um, to get to where I need to go? Yeah, I think, and thank you for for sharing that that resource and talking about the range of emotions that exist and I think helping people to broaden and be able to use this grander scale for summarizing what emotion they're experiencing makes naming it a little bit easier. So yeah. it gives them the, the terms, the tools they need to actually label the emotion they're feeling. And before, if they don't, if they have a limited way of explaining what they're feeling, it's going to be hard to to make these conversations door opening because if they just say, I, I don't know what I'm feeling. I just feel angry and they mislabel the emotion, you know, that I think that can shut the door in, in some ways. Uh, so having this allows people to better define and describe the emotion they're experiencing. And I think in leaders, this is a really important for them to know and understand because sometimes when they're coaching one of their individuals that they are responsible for, maybe that individual didn't have the same privileges or abilities in the education that that leader has. So that leader sometimes is responsible for helping that person to label the emotion they're experiencing. So sometimes in these conversations, this first step of naming the emotion, sometimes it feels like guess, like a, a game of guessing of, oh, I hear what you're saying. That must feel like 
this. So the leader is listening to their direct reports or, or whoever's story and then trying to say, man, from everything I'm hearing, it kind of sounds like you're feeling this. So, you know, sometimes it's a dialogue. You can't always expect someone just straightforward to be like, I'm this, like, this is where I'm at right now, because not everyone has that ability. And sometimes it is the dialogue of, you know, everything you're saying makes me kind of think that you're feeling like this right now. Is that accurate? So it's not, it's not always his cut and dried to name the emotion as people might think is first, it's got to be safe. People got to have the dialogue to, to name it. And there's a variety of ways to describe the emotions being experienced. So even before you start on this journey, you got to have those three things yeah. In, in place. Yeah. And you think about it. I mean, I, even with that, if what Webster tells us, you know, we've just talked about maybe 24 emotions based on politics, eight, um, you know, eight core emotions and expanded it, you know, three levels. But Webster tells us there's over 300 emotion words in the dictionary, right? So 300 emotion words. So we have a lot of emotions that we can express. And, you know, I, I like the analogy of helping people understand those, but we have to make sure that we truly understand the emotions because we can try to categorize someone in one emotion based on our experience, right? And it's become something completely different. So it's, you know, as we continue to add things to our tool belt and start to expand, um, you know, what we really understand about emotions, then it helps us to help others around us to um, help them um, communicate what they're really experiencing as well. Yes, the, the conversation is critical to, to have. And so now we've talked about step one. And if people listening to this haven't figured out that you and I are nerding out about emotional intelligence, like, I'll just tell them, we're, we're nerding out about emotional intelligence. And we've talked about, you know, the little bit of background. Um, and there's, you have an approach. So we talked about step one. Before we go to step two, um, can you share with us just kind of like the elevator speech? I've seen emotional intelligence. There's there's tools, there's assessments people can take that allow them to measure the, the amount of emotional intelligence they have. And it's been a while since I took my EQ uh, assessment, but I, there's like f- two key components of it is for for yourself, so awareness of self and then awareness of of others. So, you know, can you just kind of lay that out for us what is emotional intelligence and then once we get that defined let's jump back in and we'll talk about your your step two in your four-step approach sure so i think um i'll give a couple analogies so you know i referenced six seconds and that's the organization that i work with um around emotional intelligence and six seconds philosophy around emotional intelligence is really about being smarter with your feelings right and you know uh, also, when we talk about emotional intelligence, we cannot, um, you know, really talk about um, um, Myers and Salavi, which are the founders of emotional intelligence, right? They started the foundation of it. And it's really about, it's emotional intelligence is about being able to perceive emotions and to access them in a way to understand them, to create intellectual growth. So we have to be able to understand those things and really be smarter. But I think everybody is probably more familiar with Daniel Goldman's work around emotional intelligence, right? And that's really about those five core things being self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. So when we start to talk about emotional intelligence, you know, there's a lot of information out there, but those are probably 
the three foundational things that really help us to drive or to really understand emotional intelligence. And for me, um, six seconds and being smarter with my feelings or being smarter with my emotions to me is really about putting emotions into actions. And that was one. Of, that was the reason for me to really um, get involved with with that. So emotions are a part of who we are, but if we don't understand how to put those into actions, then we're not going to be successful. So, um, you know, I use assessments to um, help people understand emotional intelligence. You know, there's emotional intelligence scores and all of that fun stuff, but it's not just about the score. Um, it's really helping people understand where they are in that journey and then how to navigate to be successful because, you know, as we talked about, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. So even if I have a low IQ, low EQ, um, I can get there because emotional intelligence is learnable. And that's the the part to me that's important because if I can learn something, um, then that's important. And for me with six seconds, one of the things that we focus on is their core competencies. And we use those core competencies to help individuals navigate emotional intelligence and navigate the journey and create balance um, in what they're doing and how they're doing it to be successful. So I get excited about that um, because for me, you know, um, I grew up and emotions were not a part of who I was. So learning to navigate emotions, learning to express emotions, learning to put my emotions into actions in a positive way uh, was critical to me. Um, you know, so when we talk about emotional intelligence, um, you know, I could um, sit by a campfire and uh, get some marshmallows and probably have a conversation half the night. Um, but I think it's really how do we understand how to put our emotions into action? Um, because if we understand them and don't do nothing with them, it doesn't help us. If we don't understand them, we can't do anything. So we have to be able to take those emotions and put them into actions. And that's the foundation for me of, um, of emotional intelligence, because being smarter is one thing, but being able to do something with that is the, the step that gets us to success. Beautifully said. And it's a huge focus. It's growing in importance within industry and in everyday life to, to strengthen one's emotional intelligence. And I think a lot of people think that because they've read about it or they have increased awareness about it, like, you know, wash your hands of it, you're all done. I love that you're saying, no, it's it's both. It's It's knowing and doing. And I think that's where this is an awesome episode and I'm so excited to create it because you're talking a lot about the not just the knowing part but the doing part and the the four-step approach you and I discussed while we were planning for this episode is really practical and, and easy to follow so let's revisit that so step one was naming the emotion let's go to step two I mean I think step two um, it's really about listening, right? Um, so in order, to, if we name that emotions, we have to be open to listening. So if we are not listening, and it's not just listening with our ears, right? But it's listening with our eyes, it's listening with our heart, because as we start to listen with our ears, we hear one thing. But if we're listening with our eyes and we're focused, then we start to see something. And then if we're listening with our heart, then we start to feel something. And when we can hear what someone is saying and we can see what they're saying and we can start to feel what they're saying, then they help us to get a, a real um, understanding of what they're doing, why they're doing it and how they're doing it. And for me, I think about listening. Um, you know, I like to use the iceberg analogy because when we think about an iceberg, you know, we talk about one tenth of the iceberg is above water. 
So when we talk about listening is listening at level one is just, okay, I hear you. I'm listening with my ears, but I'm really listening to get my point across to you. I'm listening to rebuttal versus when we talk about a level five listening, it's, you know what? I hear what you're saying. I see the emotions that are involved in what you're saying. And now I feel what you're saying. Um, so now we're having a conversation. I can say, Thomas, you know what? I heard you say this. I saw you communicate this, but I felt this. And when you're having that conversation with the person, it's a completely different conversation because now I can say, okay, you heard me, you felt me and you saw me. So that starts to take me off my defensive and that starts to pull me in and give me an opportunity to be more vulnerable, right? I think one of the things you said is it has to be a safe space. And when we listen and we show that we're listening, it helps us to create that safe space because now people are saying, oh, they're really paying attention to what I'm feeling or they're really paying attention to what I'm saying. And that starts the conversation to safety. That starts the conversation to being more open. That starts the conversation to now I can really express how I feel and I'm comfortable doing that. And I don't feel like I'm going to be penalized for doing that. So I love that you described listening in more than just hearing what words are being said and, and listening so that you can rebuttal or pick up where that other person left off, but going deeper in the way that you're listening to see what they're saying and to feel what they're saying. So one of the, the tools that you know, I've become a huge fan of is interviewing for empathy as part of the problem-solving process. And the tool you use after you do your deep dive interviews and you engage people in storytelling and you're trying to, you know, understand their experiences and put yourself in their shoes is the empathy map. So it's a, a tool, it's a, a, a oftentimes facilitated on a flip chart, and there's four quadrants in this map. So in the upper left-hand quadrant is the same quadrant. And then right below that in the lower left-hand quadrant is the doing quadrant. So what they're saying and what they're doing is just kind of like fact-finding in some ways. And then on the right side of the page, so as you move from the left to the right, you're crossing what's called the line of inference, which is now you're trying to assess what was that person thinking and what was that person feeling and when I lead teams through empathy mapping, they really, really struggle to move from facts to the what is inferred. So maybe things they didn't explicitly say, but that were implied. A lot of people really struggle to make that leap because um, it's squishy. It's kind of ill-defined and really fuzzy, but that's where relationships really grow is trying to infer and relate to what that person is what that person's experiences have been and it, it, you're right it just allows people to um, open up in different ways and kind of let down their own guards so like when you're just listening to hear what they're saying like you're just processing the information internally instead of stepping into what that person is truly trying to express so in listening all the way to level, I think you, you said five is at, at the deepest part. You know, if people can get there, that's such an important skill to try to master. And man, I know I have a ton of work to do in that area. Listening 
is kind of always been surface level for me like because we feel like we're so busy and we don't have enough time to truly hear it all like let's get to the point let's go 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 and this isn't when you're listening, you can't rush this. This There is no timeline to it. And you can't really do it because, hey, it's a 30-minute meeting on the calendar and that's all we have time for. It, it's going to take energy and effort to go past just hearing the spoken word to experiencing what is being said and, and seeing how it's said and trying to feel what that person feels. No, absolutely. I think, you know, it's, you know we can't start and get there overnight. Um, but I think when we talk about naming the emotions and listening, you know, I think you led into step three, right? Um, and step three is really responding with empathy. It's, you know, responding with empathy is really about how do I experience what the other person is feeling, right? Um, you know, we often talk about sympathy. Sympathy is do I understand? But empathy is how can I experience it, right? Do I feel what they're saying? Do I feel? And, you know, often when we talk about um, this, you know, it's not just about responding with empathy to the person that we're talking to, but it's about responding with empathy to ourselves, right? Because oftentimes when we're naming, when we're in this conversation, we're having emotions that we have to name. Uh, we're having to listen, but we have to be empathetic to ourselves. You know, what am I really feeling? You know, and as I'm processing this, how do I internalize this? And then as we do that, we can then do it for the person that we're having that conversation with. Because if we can do it ourselves and with the person that we're having conversations with, then it creates an experience that is um, that helps us to get to where we need. It's um, not just about, okay, I've had a ser- similar experience, but you know, I understand those emotions. I understand the emotions that you're trying to communicate to me instead of saying, okay, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I acknowledge that you're frustrated. So when you acknowledge that I'm frustrated, that just says that, okay. But when you say, I understand, I I experience what you're feeling. So now, again, we're talking about creating a safe space. We're talking about creating an environment where people can be expressive and people are comfortable with their emotions and comfortable with emotional intelligence. That creates a, a, a safe space. And, you know, when we get from rational to emotional, then we can solve problems. When we can convert someone from rational thinking to emotional thinking, then we can really get to the root of the problem because most of our problems are solved emotionally, not rationally. And a lot of times we're trying to solve those problems, whether it's leaders or it's individual, we're trying to use rational thinking to solve emotional problems. And we're never going to solve them there because we are emotional beings. So we have to get to the emotions of what's driving that person. And if we're able to respond with empathy, then we can get to those emotions to help people move to where they need to instead of trying to solve it rationally uh, from that standpoint. And it, at that point, it comes collaborative, right? Because the the individual who's expressing their emotions and the person who's witnessing the emotions, there there's vulnerability there. And in some relationships, the dynamics of that relationship complicate this thing playing out in um in change management or project management they call it the power distance so it's the person of authority and the individual without authority and the relationship that they have that power distance is in at least in the way our organizations are structured here in the states people in leadership have more authority and more power than those who are in an operational capacity whether whether has a 
a manager or an individual contributor. So if someone who, you know, has this these concerns and stuff, someone who's in the front line takes that these concerns to the next level, they're talking to a leader or a manager that has more power than them. So that's where that safety sometimes doesn't exist because these individuals, the way that we've structured our organizations, aren't used to interacting in this way. So when they respond through empathy, that power distance shrinks. At this point, it's not the manager and their direct report. It's two people relating with each other, trying to figure something out together. And I think that's beautiful because a lot of times um, management or leadership like have this glass ceiling to what they can really do because they're playing they're playing within their role. Whereas practicing empathy, it's no longer about what role you play. It's who you are as a person and how are you helping another person. And I think what you were saying is really important for leaders to understand is that leading individuals is leading people. Like, and you, if you aren't willing to relate to them and collaborate with them, like you're not, you're not a leader. Well, I mean, you may identify yourself as a leader, right? But you're not going to empower your people to achieve their greatest success. And as a leader, we have to be able to get things done through others. So there's a difference between having the title of a leader and really doing what a leader should do. And if we're able to empower our people, if we're able to help our people navigate, if we're able to help our people reach their full potential, then as a leader, we're going to be successful. Um, So that goes back to the foundation of what leadership really is instead of being leadership by title. So absolutely. That is something that can unify us. And you know, I I wish that like from day one when I was in leadership, like I knew these things and I was good at these things and I'm still figuring it out. And I think a lot of leaders listening to this, maybe they haven't started and they're now they're encouraged to, or maybe they have started and they feel like they've got room to grow. You know, just hearing these things, uh, I hope are encouraging to people is that like, the, the worst thing you can do is to sweep it all under the rug and pretend emotions don't exist. But if you as a leader can be open to the power that emotions have over individuals and to find ways to allow people to understand how their emotions make them more capable of being them, them their more whole selves, then at that point, not, not will just that individual rise, but the entire organization is going to benefit from having a culture that practices leadership in that way. No, absolutely. I mean, I think when we talk about <clears throat> the the transition, it's, you know, empowering not just the leader, but how do we empower the team? And as leaders understand the value of showing empathy and um, doing those things the right way, it not just empowered them, but it starts to empower their team. Because what we know is when we do something that's communicated to someone else. So when you have an impact on one person on your team, they're going to go and share that. Whether we tell them not to or not negative or positive, they're going to go and share that. So now the next person say, wow, Thomas is a different person or Thomas is allowing me to grow. So now you look around just because you were empathetic with one of your people, just because you have one of your people truly um, trust you or truly create a safe space. Now everybody feel that there's a safe space and people want to start to share. And as we start to share, we start to grow. And as we start to grow, then there's this contagiousness around us, um, you know, to, to, to achieve the things that we need to achieve. And now, you know, 
we talk about emotions, we're in a safe space and we can have fun and we can communicate those in a way that everybody understands them. And now we start to see this, um, this natural growth in people. So there's a, a fourth step. So once we, there's a lot of benefit to practicing empathy One, it strengthens relationships and is trust building. And, you know, if organizations really ask the hard question of have we engaged our, our, so engagement is a key focus of most organizations right now. And I think engagement is a lot of things, but one of the most important things engagement is measuring is, is do we have trust here? Yeah. And I think the fourth thing is kind of two parts for me. It's remaining curious and creating accountability, right? So let's talk about remaining curious. Um, so remaining curious to me is, um, am I investigating? Am I exploring, right? You know, I, I'm, you know, I used the analogy early with um, Inside Out. Um, and one of the analogies here is kind of Curious George. So growing up for me, I watched a lot of Curious George. And, you know, Curious George was the, was, you know, the foundation of being curious. Regardless of what was given to him, he always explored. And as leaders, as people, as managers, are we exploring? Are we asking right? Are we asking the questions that we need to ask to explore? You know, are we asking questions just to ask them? Or are we asking to explore? Are we asking to get to the root of what's going? Are we being inquisitive? Are we being nosy? Right? Um, are we truly understanding what's going on? So I think oftentimes, when if we can remain curious in a situation, then we can really explore and get to where we need to. What happens is, as leaders, when we stop being curious or when we stop being concerned or stop willing to explore what's going on, then that creates a boundary for us to just stop. So as you know, when we remain curious, we're able to help because we're exploring, right? We're investigating. And then we add the accountability piece there. Accountability for me is not about punishment, but accountability goes back to what am I doing to help motivate my team? What am I doing to help them stay curious in the process? So we can remain curious and create accountability there. Then our team knows that, okay, I'm in a space where I can be successful. I'm in a space where my leader is going to help me navigate this or going to help me explore where I am, but they're also going to keep me accountable. And it's not a punishment to be accountable but it's a motivation. It's what's motivating me to be successful. And I think oftentimes we think about accountability. We think about what can I catch them doing or how can I hold them accountable or how can I punish them? No, accountability becomes what motivates them, what motivates them to be successful. And um, that curiosity and that motivation becomes the, the foundation to help us grow and to get to where we need to as well. Yeah, that's yet another thing I think leaders maybe have a misconception about is they think that their role is to have answers and at least, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, you know, project onto every leader who's listening to this. Maybe there's ones who had a different journey than I had, but at least in, in the, the books I read or the education I had to become a quote unquote effective leader, even the way I was promoted was reinforcing that I my ideas were the best and that I always had to have the answer. So I, I never really went around and asked questions at all. I simply went around and told because I thought that's what my role was. And, you know, man, like, <laughs> I, 
the slap on the forehead. Like I was way off the mark and <laughs> I just go around and I tell people what to do, how to do and why to do it. And I had to change the tone and, and the conversation and the way I led to be more inquisitive and curious. And it, it just do it for one day. Like if, if you subscribe to leadership is having the answers and you're one of those people who are going around and just telling people what to do tomorrow morning, wake up and commit to asking more questions and to being more curious. And you will see that you've been doing it the hard way in the wrong way for a long time. So man, I'm glad I got the feedback that I needed to get to realize my mistakes. And I, you know, I think I'm not alone in that. I, hopefully there's not as many people out in the world who stepped off in the dog dude like I did. But, you know, now if if you have subscribed to that, just adopt a growth mindset and try something different tomorrow and ask more questions and to be more curious, you'll see that individuals respond in, a, in an eye-opening way and um, it's magical. It's super powerful. And then the next piece is, is that accountability piece. So I think what you were saying is a great way to define it. And you use the word empowerment a lot. And I love that word. When I was working in healthcare as an internal consultant, that was what we said our product was that we sold. We weren't consultants and black belts or project managers. We, we were simply going around empowering people. And empowerment is twofold. It is First, the accountability, but if you only go around and you hold people accountable to do something they're ill-prepared to achieve, you've created anxiety. The last piece of account of empowerment is ability. So you had to create the accountability and provide the, the, the you had to create the accountability and provide the ability to actually move forward. And a lot of people forget has a leader, that other part of the equation is you can't hold someone accountable to something they are incapable of doing. So you have to create the space, the environment, and the systems and structures that actually allows that person to achieve the objective you're holding them accountable to do. Yeah. And I, and I, and I love the concept of the questioning, right? You know, because, you know, learn, one of the learning philosophies that I live by is wisdom lives within, right? If I ask you enough questions, you'll solve the problem. Um, and what we know is that when we're solving problems, if I'm a part of the solution, then we're going to have success because I'm bought into it, right? But if as, as a leader, if you're telling me do this, and the minute that we're not achieving that, then whose fault? It's your fault, right? You told me to do it. I did the way you told me to do it. So we're not successful. But when we are um, talking about accountability and talk about curiosity and we're creating processes where we are collaborative, right? and then we've come to this solution together, then it's, it's my job to get it done because it's my idea too. So I don't want to see failure. I want to see success. You know, so you're empowering me, right? You're empowering me to be successful and you're empowering me to be a part of the problem, a part, not a part of the problem, I'm sorry, but a part of the solution. And if I can be a part of the solution, then that gets me to um, that. And accountability becomes so much easier now because I'm a part of making myself accountable. It's not just your job to make me accountable, but I'm accountable to myself to myself because of I want to be successful. But more importantly, not just I want to be successful, but I want you as a leader to be successful because you have given me what I need to be successful. I think what you just said there kind of captures the benefit 
the, the human case and the business case to why practicing and in, in improving emotional intelligence has an individual, has a leader, or whatever role you play within organizations, if, if they can make that a core competency to say, we are good at emotions, here's the big picture as to why that's important, is it creates that environment that is thriving, where people feel safe to be themselves, to express their emotions, to share their ideas, to collaborate, to problem solve, to be accountable to themselves and to each other. Like, who who, who listening to this episode would be like, no, that's all hogwash and BS. Like, we don't need that. No, like, I hope people listen to this and like trip all over themselves to go gather these resources to start to practice these habits. And I love how simple you've made it in these four steps. And, you know, if individuals listen to this and and are so motivated to seek you out and to partner with you, how would they find you? And uh, if they don't go, so let's start with you, they choose you and they want to work with you. Let's start there. And then beyond that, if they want to go a different avenue, what are some resources they can equip themselves? So first, how do they get in touch with you? Sure. Um, a couple different ways. Um, you know, they can contact me at gerald at gbkbconsulting.com or just go to my website um, at www.gbkbconsulting.com and there's a link to contact me there. Um, I'm on um, LinkedIn and I'm posting daily. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn at Gerald Bush as well or GBKB Consulting on LinkedIn. Um, I'm also on Twitter, um, and um, I use that as a source to communicate. But more importantly, emotional intelligence is not just, you know, just about me. You know, I um, communicated a couple of times that one of the organizations I partner with is Six Seconds, and that's a global organization. And if you go to sixseconds.org, um, there are free classes out there um, that that's available. Um, and not just free classes, but there are certifications. There are uh, classes that range from $0 for a class to $7. And I'm a part of that community as well. And I teach classes as a part of growing university. So again, you know, find me or find sixseconds.org and go to that website. And um, there's a lot of different resources out there to really understand what emotional intelligence is. And, you know, it's not just about um, me, but it's really about you know, as we started this process, how do we get a billion people practicing emotional intelligence? So, um, so yeah. L- love it. And thank you for sharing those resources as we put this episode out into the universe and the show notes. You know, I want to put these resources in there because I really want individuals to be excited about this and to take that excitement and translate it into strengthening of their emotional intelligence and all of the beautiful things that can happen thereafter. Like it is transformative to go through this journey of not know the emotions exist and not knowing what to do with them to learning to embrace them and talk about them and build empathy around them. And through that empathy to create safety and trust and collegiality and collaboration. And then beyond that, when people are able to be them whole selves, they're able to work better together with others. And I think good things can happen as a result of that is now this person and that other person can connect in ways that they weren't able to before. And through that connection, they can share their ideas and 
those two ideas can intermingle and strengthen one another and, and who knows what will happen as a result of that. So there's obvious reasons that people should go on this journey and I want to make sure we give them the resources they need to get to get going and to keep it keep it going. I think sometimes people got all the energy early on. This thing is a marathon. It's not go out of the gate and go as hard as fast as you can, but pace yourself and and commit to doing this over the long term. No, absolutely. I think, you know, we can, we can all go out and get self-help and read a book and, and those things are important. Um, you know, but the other conversation becomes it's the journey, not the destination. So what are you doing to continually feed yourself? What are you continually doing to, um, give yourself what you need to be successful because just going out reading EQ 2.0 and taking the assessment, that's the easy part. Um, but once you've gotten past that, then what are you doing daily, weekly, monthly, uh, and annually to continue to do the work that you need to get done? And for me, one of the things that I uh, love to do is um, help create accountability, help to um, create foundations to help people to grow. And I do that through coaching. Um, I do that through organizational development. I do that through team building. And I do, do that through working with organizations and their leaders to create an emotionally intelligent organization. Um, so for me, it's not just a one-step approach, but it's really about life-changing. And for me personally, um, my life has been changed by using emotional intelligence in my marriage, in coaching my kids, um, in uh, building and growing organizations more importantly for me and just building relationships in my community. So um, I stand by because it's changed my life. What an awesome endorsement. And I can't thank you enough for coming on to the episode and sharing your passion and sharing your journey and inspiring people through those things. So thanks so much for coming on the episode. Thanks, Thomas.